David Spada is a successful attorney whose dream was to become a sports talk show host. Elliot Harris is a Chicago sports columnist who wanted to expand his media presence. In the next hour, they combine their talents and love of sports and women by interviewing former professional athletes and lovely ladies on sports and torts. But keeping the boys out of trouble isn't always easy because when David and Elliot are together, they have more fun than should be legal. Elliot, there's times when you get really excited about an interview, and this is one I am really excited about because I've watched this gentleman for years on Monday Night Football since I'm only 41. I don't remember him playing. Some of us even watched him play, so I'm equally excited, if not more so. And I read his book about the 58 championship game, and I could not put it down. It was absolutely fabulous. On the phone, Pro Football Hall of Famer, Frank Gifford. How are you doing, Mr. Gifford? Hi, guys. How are you? Good. Good. So you're driving from a meeting? Well, actually, I pull over, and if uh, the cop comes up and tells me to move, I'll have to move. Well, David's uh, a lo- it's a beautiful, day, beautiful day here. I'm in my in my home in Connecticut, and love it here, and everything is uh, couldn't be better. Well, David's a lawyer, and he's, he specializes in traffic problems. So I, I don't well, know. I've, if got he's... I've got enough. I've had enough lawyers in my life, please. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, you, David. You you worked with a lawyer at one time in Howard Cosell. Uh, well, yeah, he was, I guess. <laughs> he told us he was. <laughs> I wouldn't want him representing me. <laughs> oh, bless his heart. He's gone on to that great gridiron, though. So, I, when you went to USC, was USC a, a big football program back then, or were you one of its first big recruits? Uh, no, uh, actually, in the, uh, it was a Pac-10 at the time. And I think they you know, they miscounted. I think there were only eight. Um, but no, USC and, uh, California football was always big. I mean, it was big then. We, we played, uh, my senior year, we played, uh, we played, uh, Army in Yankee Stadium. We also played Notre Dame in Notre Dame. So, I mean, we, we had a big program. USC didn't Hello? receive quite the coverage back in the day that you can now with cable television and things like that, though. Well, you know, nothing did, of course. Uh, uh we were in the early days of television. Uh, everything uh, I did early on was in black and white. Uh, it was, uh, you know, it, it was vastly different. These guys today, they, they play, you know, under a microscope. Uh, and not only the way they play, but the way they live. It, it's a totally different world. And then you get drafted by the Giants. And then you went from the left coast, what, to the right coast? Yeah, I was kind of surprised. And then they called me up. I, I didn't even know that they were drafting that day. And I got a phone call from uh, Braven Dyer, who was a sports writer for the, for the L.A. Times. He said, well, what do you think about going to New York? And I said, well, I had a great time. And I, he said, no, you've been drafted by the Giants. I said, I don't, I don't play baseball. And, and I, went, I was only half kidding because uh, I didn't, you know, I didn't even know they had a professional team, quite honestly. I mean, pro football wasn't that big, and uh, I wasn't going to play. I was, uh, had a pretty good career going. I was doing a lot of stunt work and uh, studying acting, and I was under contract to Warner Brothers at the time. And, uh, and then, I don't know, it just seemed like a... A good idea. I had been married as a senior, and I thought, well, uh, I'd just go and play one football season, check out New York, and see what it looks like, the Statue of Liberty, and and see what the big buildings look like. And uh, here I am. I'm still here. And that was back in 1952. So did you end up in any movies? 
Uh, yeah, I worked, uh, did a lot of stunt work. Uh, John Wayne uh, actually was a football player at USC, and when I and a lot of times the USC was able to recruit players by getting them into the Screen Extras and the Screen Actors Guild. And then on our off days or our vacations, we'd phone in and get jobs. They were making a lot of military movies after the war then. So there was a, a big demand for soldiers as extras. And uh, it was a good way to augment uh, the income that we did have, which wasn't very much. But I mean, I did enjoy it. And so I started seriously getting involved in studying acting. And uh, uh, one time I was under contract with Warner Brothers. And they gave me an ultimatum a few years later to either... It was either football or acting, and uh, Mr. Mara at the time, that, that year I was the MVP in the NFL, and uh, he gave me a call, and he said, look, uh, here's what we'll do. Uh, you don't worry about your contract with them. We'll take care of that. You come and be with us. So I'm still here. <laughs> so when you started playing with the Giants, I mean, where were you? I, mean, I saw you play cornerback your first year, then you moved to offense. Was there a reason that uh, they moved you? Well, I played both ways at uh, USC. They couldn't figure out, you know, I think what to do with me. But uh, I made the, the, my senior year, I, I went strictly to offense, and we had a pretty good football team. I had a big year and made All-Coast and All-American and all that stuff and was up for the Heisman. And uh, it was uh, it was all, all new to me, too. I'd never been in that kind of limelight before. But then uh, I got a phone call. I was, I was on my way skiing up, up, up to Baldy Mountain in January of 52, and somebody called me, a newspaper guy, I think it was Brave and Dyer, the New York Times, or the L.A. Times, and said, well, what do you think about being drafted by the Giants? <laughs> and my first media reaction was, I don't play baseball. <laughs> and, but it uh, it turned out great for me, and I got uh, to know the, the family, the Mara family, and they're still dear friends of mine. I was with the Wellington Mara's the widow the other night at a big function back here, and it worked out fine for me, and I just Wish it could work out the same way for some, for many people, because it, it really was happening for me. What was the transition like from California to New York? Uh, it wasn't all that big a deal. New York is a very small town, really. Just got a lot of numbers, and uh, but if you live in Manhattan, it's only you know a few miles long and about a half a mile wide, or maybe a mile at the most. And I know the people are very friendly, very warm. Uh, it has a great, great history and. I got deeply involved in that, and uh, I made uh, so many friends, and they're still, they've, been, they've been lifetime friends to me. And I was really blessed. Uh, I couldn't imagine what might have happened had I gone to other places. And, uh, but uh, I was, was blessed and fortunate that I was in New York. The 58 championship game, the greatest game ever played, a lot of people said. What was that like? <laughs> well, if I hadn't fumbled a couple of times, it wouldn't have been called the greatest game ever played, because it would have been a wipeout. Uh, I had uh, I fumbled one time uh, uh, on the way in to score. We were in, in t- uh, scoring territory at that time, and then I scored another uh, fumbled another time on the way out of, uh, of scoring territory. So I mean, I, uh, I was a big plus for Baltimore that day. <laughs> but that was a game that that brought the NFL to it national was, prominence. Not, yeah, and I, I'm not kidding about that. It was uh, there's no question it was Johnny Unitas, uh, of course, was, uh, was a legendary NFL quarterback and. Uh, where you, you know, think of all the players that did play in that particular game. And, you know, they're, uh, it, it went down in, in history as a great football game, and it was that. It was the first game that ever, first game period that ever went into overtime. And, of course, we lost in overtime, and then 
and that was a historic thing in itself. But it, it really uh, defined pro football. But more importantly, the uh, it was uh, nationally televised, and there had been two games that had been nationally televised up until that time. And when they got the ratings in on it, they were astonished at what they were. And they, and they were just incredible. Since something like 75 or 80% of the sets in the country in use had been watching that football game. And in particular, the West Coast really got a dose of it because it went into the later hours. It was a, a 1 o'clock start, but it went into overtime. So consequently, more sets came into use on the West Coast. And it had a great deal to do with what happened uh, in the entire NFL from that point on in terms of television. And no one knew about overtime, right? Because it was the first overtime game. Mm, went into overtime, and uh, like I said, uh, uh, we had uh, we had the first possession, and uh, it was uh, we didn't we didn't get the first down, and we decided to punt rather than going for a fourth down at about a yard on about our own uh, thirty-five or forty-yard line. I always thought we should have because uh, everyone was exhausted at that point, and, uh, but it was. Uh, Johnny Godinus and Raymond Barry teamed up on that uh, kind of memorable drive, if you're old enough to remember it. Uh, but they came down the field, and it was a great performance. And then there's no question to me that uh, Johnny was one of the great quarterbacks of all time, and Raymond Barry one of the great receivers, and they, they put it all together, and uh, that was it. And then Alan Amici was the guy who went over the goal line with the football, and that was the end of the game. Yeah, he, was, he wasn't bad either. Yeah, and it was because we didn't know quite what happened. Whether, you know, First of all, when we ended up, Tied, we didn't know what to do, and they didn't either. And the officials actually didn't know how to go about it. So they didn't know how much time we would have before they would they would kick off for the overtime, or uh, do we do they flip a coin, which they ultimately did, uh, as to who would receive first. And we did receive, and it was one possession by us, and then one possession by them, and then again uh, they scored Amici from about the two yard line, and uh, that was that. I think what's amazing is Gino Marchetti was out. He was in the locker room listening to the game on radio. He had the ball boy going back and forth. And I heard after the game that Amici gave the ball to Marchetti. Marchetti put the ball in his closet for years. And then he gave it to the Italian-American Sports Hall of Fame here in Chicago. And the NFL Hall of Fame has wanted that ball for years, but they can't get it. <laughs> well, maybe they can make a deal with him. But I, I, I you know, so vividly remember that play, the 47th power. I carried the ball on a third down in about a yard. And I always had to claim, you know, I knew you couldn't make a big deal out of it because Gino um, uh, uh, Marchetti broke his leg on that play. It was a big pile up at the line of scrimmage. And I, I, was, I was fairly positive. I didn't even look over the yard markers, and I'd made the first down. But when the official, the referee, came running in and grabbed the ball, and Marchetti was screaming like a panther, and the, the bone actually was coming and had protruded for his leg. And it was, we obviously he was very seriously hurt. And so they were unpiling everything, and they never bothered to uh, where they put where they marked the ball. And years later, I talked to uh, a couple of the officials who were involved in it, and and they they felt the same way. You know, they, they, we didn't get a fair mark on it. And I've been playing football a lot of years at that point. And when I turned the corner and turned it upfield, I had a good block. I broke it back into the inside, and to this day, I think I made the first down. I'm not going to make. A big issue out of it, and I didn't at the time because it would have looked like the sour grapes. I knew they weren't going to change it, uh, but I've said it, uh, you know, and I've written about it, and uh, I felt that I did have the first down. Now, whether or not we would have gone in to score or to kick a field goal, I don't know, but at least it would have been a different kind of an outcome, I think, from that point on.
You know, if Art Donovan tells a story, it'd be completely different. Who does? If Art Donovan tells a story, you know, he'll <laughs> expand on it. Art even good. I mean, Art, Art is a big old pudgy guy sitting over there. But I'll tell you, you come up to the line of scrimmage and look over to see those guys. You see Artie Donovan and, and Gino Marchetti. And, uh, they, they were, they were a great football team. Uh, if you think about it today, we go again, what do we have? 32 franchises playing football. Right. Yes. And, you know, 50 man rosters or whatever the heck they are. At the time, there were 12 teams that played, and we had like 33-man rosters. So all the good players were being used, and there was none you had to have just to fill out a roster. I mean, uh, uh, it was, then Baltimore is one of the great, when you go down the, their lineup, and I won't bother doing it right now, but I mean, like I mentioned several of them, uh, they were they were unbelievable. And uh, I feel the same way about our, our backfield, Alex Webster and myself, uh, and I, we, you know, we both made uh, many pro balls. Uh, Charlie Connolly, our quarterback, was a great quarterback. Uh, we, we, we had we had great personnel, and uh, it just wasn't as diluted uh, as it has become over the years. And you had a pretty good defensive unit as well. Well, they were the best. Tom Landry, of course, was a player coach at the time. He went on to become a, a Hall of Fame coach uh, with the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, it, it was Sam Huff was in the middle, uh, Harlan Savari, uh, just uh, extraordinary guys. And, uh, uh, and it was a uh, it, it was a memorable game, and uh, I think it it helped define pro football as one of the as having arrived, if you will, uh, in the eyes of the public. I talked to Bob Avellini last year, and he mentioned to me that when the Giants needed a new coach after your coach retired, that they picked the wrong coach. You had Lombardi as an assistant coach and Landry, and they picked someone completely different. And they said they had two great coaches, and I, I don't know why they went in the direction they did. They picked Jim Lee Howell, if that's, that's yes. who you're talking about. Right. But but uh, they hadn't Lombardi hadn't been there. I think he had been there a couple of years, and Landry, of course, was still playing. So, arguably, I always felt the same thing, and I was surprised that Mr. Mara and Wellington Mara made the big decision on that. I'm I'm surprised that he made that move, but I think he felt that he could take Jim Lee Howell, who was uh, who knew little or nothing about uh, the game of football. But he was a disciplinarian. He had been, uh, uh, I think, a major or something in the military. Uh, and we had a we had a bunch of guys who uh, were, I wouldn't want to use the word wild, but they boarded on it. <laughs> a lot of returning servicemen uh, and guys that uh, you know they were they were tough to discipline. So I think he looked at it that way. Jim Lee Howell, a, a military veteran himself, uh, could handle these guys much better than. Uh, uh, Marty, who was right out of Fordham, where he'd never he'd never been a head coach. Tom Landry was a player coach, so I, I think I think he made the move just uh, for those reasons. And of course, you're right, Miss Lombardi went to Green Bay and put together a Hall of Fame career. Tom went to Dallas and he put together a Hall of Fame career down there. How did you know when it was time to get out of playing? My head hurt. <laughs> no. I- I didn't want to. I didn't want to hang around like a lot of guys I had seen uh, hang out. Uh, more than that, I started working. Uh, oh gosh, right after 1958, uh, my my you know, last season was uh, well after that. But I mean, uh, in 1958, I started working in local television. I did local news when it was uh, a new thing on television. Uh, I had a network radio show that I shared with Phil Rizzuto, and I knew what I was going to do. I had a place to go. A lot of guys at that time, I've said, were had returned from the military, and 
when they left football, they really didn't know what they were going to do. I knew what I was going to do, and uh, I couldn't wait to do it. Uh, and I, I played enough. I played 12 years. And there was a, you know, the, the, we were changing coaches again. Uh, we were, had a coach at the time who had replaced Jim Lee Howell, and that was Alex Sherman. And uh, he was a disaster. And yeah. not, not personally, but, I mean, he, he arrived with, with the football team just coming apart. Guys are retiring. Guys didn't, didn't like him. And uh, it, it, I, I could see that, too. And uh, I knew when it was time to get out. You had the serious head injury knocked you out for over a year. What do you think about what's going in NFL now with concussions? Well, I, I keep trying to tell people I had a spinal concussion. And it wasn't until years later. Uh, they didn't have the CAT scan in 1960 when I got that famous hit by Bednarik and I'm lying on the, on the back of, on my back in the field. And it's still, I think, at a postage stamp in Philadelphia. But, uh, it's, uh, with, in retrospect, and, uh, I've looked into it. Of course, years later, I started getting a lot of numbness numbness and tingling in my arms and I went in at the time and by then they had the CAT scan and I went to see a specialist and uh, it was even the technician that did the CAT scan and I came out of the CAT scan and he said, and he said well, were you ever in an automobile accident? <laughs> I thought, no, but I but not, Eric wasn't a car, but it was, uh, I, it was, I had multiple fractures of vertebrae in my neck and it's just a good thing I decided to take a year off because had I gone back and tried to play, uh, it would have, might have been uh, you know much worse than it was. But I took that year off, and everything healed up. And people remember me only as getting hit at that point. But I came back and played uh, four more years, and I went to the Pro Bowl again as a wide receiver. So I mean that did not define my career. It was just was a dramatic thing that people kept replaying over the years. And uh, I think, like I said, it was on a postage stamp in Philadelphia. <laughs> but here, you did some damage to Benaric too, though, because you knocked some of his screws loose. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to go there. <laughs> <laughs> what was your favorite position playing? Uh, you know, I just loved to play. I really did. Uh, I played a bunch of years as a uh, defensive back. And uh, I doubled up a couple times in a couple of years as both a defensive back, offensive back. I was a tailback really in the single wing when I came out of USC. I made All-American as a tailback, and I could run, I could pass, I could block, I could catch. And for several years, I was our leading uh, receiver and our leading rusher uh, with the Giants. So, I mean, I just I love to play football. I mean, uh, I, don't think that, I don't think I would have had the kind of career that I had where I playing today because everything is so specially oriented. And uh, I just, heck, I just love to play. I saw you on TV several years ago when Dandy Don Meredith died on Monday Night Football, and you talking about him. It brought a tear to my eye. It seems like you two are really close. Well, he was uh, he was the best of friends. He really was. Uh, incredible guy. Uh, we got to know each other on Monday Night Football, and we stayed friends after that. He was, uh, he was a one of a kind, and uh, uh, he lived, you know, Far too short a life. And the parking enforcer is telling me got to move. <laughs> you you want to talk to my cop? I'll talk to the cop. <laughs> you guys on the radio? Yeah, you guys talk to the guys in Chicago. They're on radio. <laughs> I'm about to get Frank here for the ticket, guys. No, he's all right. Well, we don't want you to do that. <laughs> no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. You take care now. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thanks, Thanks, everybody. Everybody. Everything's done. Thank you. Thank you. 
Bet you haven't had that happen. No, that's the first. <laughs> I don't think uh, David has his Connecticut law license either. So. No, I don't. <laughs> no, he's, uh, he's actually a Giant fan, so we got, we got lucky. <laughs> Are there any Jet fans? Uh, in Greenwich, I don't think so. <laughs> so who, Greenwich is kind of posh. <laughs> so who was the better broadcaster on the team, you or Kyle Rote? Uh, well, Kyle could have done anything he wanted to do. Uh, he was, he was a dreamer. He was an artist. Uh, he uh, really, he was a really remarkable person. And he would have had, he'd been, he would have been an unbelievable football player, but he actually limped to a career that people still remember. But then he was, you know, he's fantastic when he was at SMU and he was one of the people that inspired me to go into professional football because I happened to be listening on radio after I was coming down from a mountain outside of L.A. after a skiing trip, when Kyle wrote and uh, SMU was playing Notre Dame. And he had done, and it was the most fascinating radio call I've ever heard. And then he was drafted number one by the Giants uh, the year before I was drafted number one. And he got hurt that season in training camp. And so I, they were going to play me on defense. So that was the reason I went over to the offense, and uh, because Kyle had tore his knee up and never did recover from that. But he limped through a pretty long career with the Giants. They made the Pro Bowl a couple of times, and God only knows what he would have been had he not uh, torn that knee up before his first football game. What was Howard Cosell like? Howard Cosell was okay. He was uh, he was uh, kind of a he was, he had a, it was a brilliant band. He really was. He had had a great mind. He had a uh, he had, you know, he, his name was really Howard Cohen. At the time, he felt there was great prejudice against him coming into the broadcasting world. Uh, he was defensive about everything, and Lord knows he might have been right about a lot of things at that time and this point in history. And uh, he was, uh, he was, he, he could be very difficult, but in some things he was brilliant. He had a remarkable memory. Uh, it was. Uh, he had a way of interviewing that few people did. It was more of an interrogation. And he arguably was one of the first people who, at least in radio and television, uh, you know, wasn't kissing up to somebody when they interview him. Howard just, he, he, he asked the questions that other people wanted to know the answers to. So one of the first people to do it. So you were like the traffic cop. Now you all do it. <laughs> yeah. You were like the traffic cop in the booth between uh, Meredith and Cosell then. Oh, at times, but I never felt that way. I've heard that over the years. Don, like I said, was uh, became, you know, one of my dearest friends. And, you know, he we lost a real beauty in him. But he didn't miss much, I can tell you that, on the way out. Yeah. Your son's following your footsteps, I see, in acting and also playing football at USC. <laughs> yeah, he's... Uh, I talked to him this morning. I'm not quite sure what he's doing. <laughs> but he sounded like he was having a hell of a time doing it. And uh, I've always encouraged him to do that. And you know what he really is? And uh, I've heard this, too, about him being an actor, football player, and all that. He actually is on the dean's list, a straight-A student at USC, majored in the film school, and he didn't get that from me. <laughs> uh, he earned that in every way, and I am just so proud of him. How did he convince his mom to let him play football? She didn't know. I didn't know. He, <laughs> I didn't even. I didn't even know he'd gone after the team. Pat Hayden, the athletic director, called one day, and uh, Pat and I remained friends over the years. And when he played with the Cardinals years ago, and I played at USC, and then worked his way through a lot of different areas at USC. And 
and is now the athletic director. Well, he called me and and uh, to tell me that, that sorry about Cody, he had sprained his ankle, and I didn't even I didn't even know he was playing football. And I said, "Well, how do you do that? And why are you calling?" Me? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, "Well, Cody actually he got he got piled up in me, and and I I, I had not known he was even up for the team." But he did. He made the varsity and uh, made it again. And he's going to uh, stay an extra semester, even though he's got a job with a film company. He's going to stay another semester because he has one more that one semester that he missed, uh, or that one season that he missed. He has that eligibility remaining, and he's going to stay, and he'll be playing this fall. Who's tougher on him, you or your wife? Uh, none of us. He's a great kid. Because we could never have asked for anyone you know, for anyone to turn out better than he did. He's also 6'4 and about 225 pounds, and uh, he's a fine athlete. But I'm even much more proud of the, you know, he's a, he's won every academic award they've got out there, and uh, I'm just so proud of that. Will there ever be a time where Monday Night Football will be what it once was, when it, it was it was destination television, and it was something special? I don't think there is destination television anymore. Unless it's a, a moon launch or something like that, uh, it, it just it's just too much out there. And you know, every, everything seems so uh, uh, focused now, if you will. There's nothing that crosses over the demographics and reaches out to an entire country, country like uh, Monday Night Football did. People, a lot of people, tune in to watch it because they'd never heard anyone like Howard. A lot of them wanted to see what Don was going to do to puncture that balloon, that arrogant guy that was on TV. They didn't even know what football was about. Some people tuned in to watch the uh, uh, the game itself, that there was uh, so much that surrounded it. Uh, there'll never be a circumstance like that again, because every everything is covered in uh, that infinite of today. I mean, gosh, if there's anything going on, you've got, you, know, you just go to any press conference and look out there and see a sea of cameras, and they're all going somewhere. Uh, it's, it's just a world of difference. But if, uh, as I've said many times, we had the best of times that we really did. I love you and your wife. When your wife left the Regis and Kathy Lee show, I was so sad. I could never accept Kelly. You, <laughs> you two are like the perfect couple. I really liked the episode of Coach when you were on there and Jerry Van Dam or Luther Van, Van Dam, Jerry Van Dyke spilled the food all over you and Kathy Lee. That was hysterical. <laughs> I forgot all about that. <laughs> a reminder. <laughs> no, she's done, she's done great. You know, she loves uh, the things, the, the gig now she's doing on the Today Show. And she and Hoda are, are they're a scream. They really are. Yeah. I don't know you're watching them now, but they're as funny as hell. They really are. They're having a great time. Yeah, I, I keep waiting for those two to have their own reality show. Uh, well, I'll tell you, they're, they're cl- people are climbing all over to do a lot of things. And, and they've, they've just both of them been there and done that, you know, and, and they bring something to television that you have a hard time finding, and that—that that is a real pleasure in, in, in doing it. And they get along uh, just like they do on the air. They—they they really adore each other and have res- great respect for each other. And they're—they're uh, they're a remarkable pair. Thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure talking to you. Okay. Good luck, guys. Alrighty. Thank you. Don't get any tickets. <laughs> no, I think I know that guy. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds great. That was legendary broadcaster, NFL Hall of Famer Frank Gifford. What a pleasure. Indeed. What a life. And it's, it's still got a lot to live. Yeah. I mean, some of the stories are absolutely incredible here. I mean, look, his career has spanned 50 years in the NFL, basically. Right. I mean, it, 
it wasn't the infancy of the NFL, but it was the fairly early stages. It was the pre-NFL being America's pastime. It was sort of America's afterthought. Okay, we're going to take a short break, but who's our girl today? I don't see anyone in studio. Nobody in studio. She's busy working. Couldn't come in. Janina Bacaria, Bacaria, who once upon a time was a Blackhawks ice crew member, has now gone on to bigger and better things where she is one of the participants, I'll say one of the stars, of the NBC TV series Love in the Wild. I was getting all excited, then I found out she wasn't going to be in the studio. You just uh, you know, ruined my day. you got to come up out with me some night on the town. The only thing I could afford about a divorce is the attorney fees. <laughs> Stay tuned. <laughs>